Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. Survival is the rule of the day. My jaw was broken. I could feel my molars in the centre of my mouth. We're out there. At the end of the day, everyone wearing green is a soldier. Getting yourself blown up does some interesting things to you. Uh, a place like the Middle East is constantly There's changing. What we do there is constantly changing. And this, the thing was our own minefield. He held me up with a broken whiskey bottle and machete. For today's bonus episode, I spoke with a man who is tracking down homeless Australian war veterans and putting a roof over their heads. Jay Devereaux is the founder and CEO of Veterans 360 Australia, a charity that locates and provides ongoing support for homeless veterans throughout the country. Welcome to the podcast, Jay. Hi, Alex. Thank you. You and your charity have been the centre of some criticism recently due to your controversial past. Can you tell me more about your past? I certainly can, mate. I... uh worked back in the 90s in the Reserve Bank of Australia. I had a security role at the RBA, and that was actually in South Australia at the Adelaide branch. I uh, moved over to Western Australia uh, post that and worked in other security-related areas. Then after a marriage breakdown, uh, unfortunately, I ended up uh, uh, homeless. I returned to Adelaide and I ended up homeless, uh, drug addicted, and got myself into some trouble with the law. I was actually convicted of uh, an armed robbery, as they call it, And um, about four years after that, this happened in 2004, whilst I was at the peak of my living on the street time. And unfortunately, about four years later, I was arrested for that and ended up spending about three and a half years in prison. What brought you to such lows, Jay? Look, it was a marriage breakdown initially. I uh, also have been diagnosed with PTSD from other traumatic events in my life. Um, And obviously, being a person who was uh, homeless and, and... destitute, you know, there was, I guess, a lot of uh, concern in my world about how I was going to survive from day to day. And unfortunately, when somebody is addicted to amphetamines was my drug of choice. And uh, when somebody's addicted to that, the, uh, the psychotic events that take place from time to time see one behaving in manners that are not uh, typically of their character. So not making any excuses about it. I I own my past and I own where it took me. And I certainly um, credit much of what I experienced and and perpetrated uh, these days to my ability to be able to work in the field that I work in in a non-judgmental sense. I might clarify here, Jay, because uh, this is primarily a war veterans podcast. You mentioned PTSD, but that's not come from any form of service. You're not a veteran yourself. No, as I said, I, uh, I worked for the Commonwealth in the Reserve Bank, and uh, my PTSD was actually related to uh, uh, events of violence and sexual abuse in my childhood. Um, and look, there were some career-related events as well from uh, the career that I worked in, but it wasn't something that came from any combat or uh, any Defence Force service, no. So, Jay, you go into prison for assault and theft and then you come out of prison and start a charity to help homeless veterans. How did you make that transition, that change in character? Right. Um, it wasn't really quite that immediate. I, uh, I was jailed in January of 2008 and released in January of 2011. During that period, I, um, 
I spent some time studying. I decided upon entry to the prison system that I really had a fork in the road or a choice to make whether I was going to become a part of the uh, peer group inside there and, and follow a path like that or whether I would indeed continue with my rehabilitation that by that time I, I had been married. Uh, I was remarried and I had reformed myself from any drug or alcohol use. Um, and I'd done that through the benefit of counselling and through um, rehabilitation programs in the community. And uh, essentially, I, I decided that whilst in prison, I would use that time uh, to educate myself and, and to put myself in a, uh, a much better position for when I get out. So I studied criminology and criminal justice. And um, yeah, I, I put those efforts into that so that I didn't become a part of the uh, typical prison clique you know, made sure that I had something to step out of the door with. And, and indeed, when I did leave prison on the, on parole, I went back to work fairly shortly afterwards um, into uh, hospitality, managing hotels. Indeed, the um, lady who whom I'd worked for prior to going to prison had kept a position as a manager open for me and uh, as a fully-fledged manager running the hotel, the staff and uh, ordering and all of those areas. It was probably a good five years before I, sorry, four years before I uh, uh, felt that I was in a, a position to be able to uh, start to look at doing things that really interested me. It was great to pay the bills, but um, then I saw a, a TV show on the ABC, Four Corners, which was uh, relative to PTSD and homelessness in our military community. And at that point, when I watched that show, it was a, I believe it was the 10th of March, 2015, I was thrown back immediately into my homelessness and my destitution and and those feelings of, um, you know, really significant disenfranchisation from the community and family and friends. And I was appalled and, and shocked uh, to know that our service veterans and, and, you know, people that had served in, in the, at the time, ongoing conflict were... Uh, were coming back to Australia and finding themselves in such a position that they didn't have somewhere to live and that they were living on the streets. And uh, indeed, Jeff Evans had set up uh, the Homes for Heroes project in Sydney. You know, I was quite impressed by what I saw and the results he was achieving. And once again, it took me back to my last couple of weeks on the street when a stranger walked up to me and said, you know, there's something we can do here for you. I pretty much told him to naff off as you do with, with strangers approaching you when you're in that situation. But this guy was quite tenacious and started engaging me by asking me what I did before I became homeless, what my life was like, um, you know, what sort of career I'd had in the past and and what dreams and aspirations I had for the future. This tenacity really did uh, switch something positive on in my mind and sort of gave me cause for pause. And, and I thought that, you know, perhaps I should listen to this chap. And, and indeed, the day that uh, he offered me uh, to come in from the tent that I was living in. It was August in the middle of winter in South Australia. It was very cold and wet. Um, and for the first night in a long time, I'd slept in a hotel room with, uh, you know, a nice dry bed, a shower, a heater, and, um, you know, a, a modicum of normality that I hadn't experienced in about nine months. And, and indeed, that was the last day I used drugs. I, I decided at that point that an opportunity had been given to me and that I was going to take that that was presented and, and I was going to run with it and, um, you know, hopefully bring myself back to a, a place in life that was more comfortable and more sustainable. 
the chronology there is important as well, that the particular charge you went to prison for, the assault and theft, that happened, as you said, in 2004. Yes. And you're charged with it in 2008. So there's a four-year transition period there as well. There was indeed. I was actually went to trial in late 2007 in September. I wasn't actually jailed. I was released on bail. And I wasn't actually jailed or sentenced for that until January 2008. That's correct. Well, Jay, you account for yourself very clearly there. But I suppose what causes the headlines, what might cause the controversy for you is people just see the stamp of the criminal past and you're asking people to donate their time and money to a charity that you are personally running. And given your past, when people challenge you on that, why should they trust you? What's your response? Oh, look, my answer to that would be why shouldn't they? I think, um, you know, we have the ACNC, the uh, Australian Charities and Not-for-Profits Commission who oversee uh, all registered charities in Australia. And, um, you know, there's governance and compliance modes that need to be adhered to. Um, we're very fortunate to have Deloitte as our accountants um, and their services are provided without cost to us uh, as a charity. And they do our, uh, currently doing our accounts and our auditing so that we're able to make sure that transparency and acquittal is, uh, is available for anybody who's interested. Um, look, I, I would suggest that on the scale of trust, that's certainly a subjective issue. Um, some might not trust somebody with a past such as mine. It, it hasn't affected really anyone that I deal with personally uh, in a negative way. In fact, the feedback that I get more often than not is that people are, are quite comfortable knowing my past. It's something I bring up very early in conversations with people. When we speak about this organisation, we don't necessarily speak about what we do. We don't speak about how we do it. I always start with why. And the first part of my conversation is always about why I'm inspired and why I'm so passionate um, that our Australian Defence Force veterans and ex-service personnel should not be experiencing homelessness post-service. And, you know, I, I have that personal empathy and understanding of what it's like to be out there. A number of people that uh, we've had the honour of assisting have had uh, criminal contact with the criminal justice system, I'm sorry, and we've been in a position to be able to assist them, guide them, um, encourage them to uh, have contact with lawyers and in, in certainly in some areas specific lawyers that are either current serving or, uh, or veterans themselves. And, uh, you know, that, that synergy really does play out quite well for some people that, that have drug and alcohol problems, that, that suffer with depression and PTSD. Um, being able to sit down with somebody in situ whilst they're, um, you know, literally in a gutter feeling worthless and hopeless um, and being able to look at them and they don't need to tell their whole story because I guess from a personal point of view, I get it. And after a very short amount of time, they get that I get it. So it's uh, one of those areas, me personally, when I'm dealing with people, and we do have an outreach team that deal um, with, with numerous people around Australia, but when I'm personally dealing with people, it's not something that, that really comes out. And as far as our donors are concerned, I'm very honest. I make sure that uh, if people do contact us, and, and indeed this has happened in recent times, people have contacted us and said, I've been told this by somebody else, is it true? And I say, yes, it is. Do you have any questions? Um, and from that point, those questions are answered honestly and as frankly as possible. Um, and to date, I've, um, I've not had anybody who said we don't want to have anything more to do with you as a result. Well, Jay, I don't know many people who own who they are quite 
as well as you do. So my congratulations to you for that. And thank you for your honesty as well. No, it's a pleasure. And I, I'll just do a language correction there, Alex. Um, it's not who I am. It was something that happened a while ago. And uh, who I am today is, is much different. I could not fathom, um, you know, living in those conditions and behaving in those ways and using drugs and, um, you know, subjecting myself personally to those sorts of environmental differences. You know, indeed, these days I'm very well settled. I have a loving partner and uh, I maintain a home, albeit a very uh, mild and uh, humble existence. I'm very, very happy and um, I make sure that our focus is on our veterans and the people that we can assist through the work we do. But I appreciate the compliment. Thank you. Well, that is the past. It is who you were. And now I'd like to talk about the present. So sure. you run this charity, Veterans 360 Australia, and you mentioned the Four Corners episode that kickstarted the inspiration what I don't see the connection to is why did you then decide to start your own charity specifically? That's a massive undertaking. Why not join one of the many existing groups out there? Well, it, there's quite a uh, interesting story there. Uh, a gentleman by the name of Michael Spring, uh, he goes by the name of Mick Spring generally. He's uh, 38 years Army. He's a Warren Officer Class 1. Saw that same program on that same night and started up a Facebook page called Veterans Off The Streets Australia. And the acronym for that is VOTSA, as you know, everybody in the military loves an acronym. They certainly do. <laughs> uh, and he started up VOTSA and uh, I became involved with that page very quickly. It was uh, actually something that was triggered quite by accident. Um, a young man, a veteran himself of Afghanistan who was attached to the 5th Aviation Unit had posted his medals and other memorabilia on eBay for sale. And this is a couple of weeks before Anzac Day, about three weeks from memory. I'd seen this sale come up and a few of my mates and I that, that get together on a page on Facebook saw this and were a little bit suspicious of it. There was some big money being uh, asked for these, these medals and this memorabilia. And we read the story and were absolutely astounded. This gentleman had recently gone through a, uh, a marital breakup. Uh, he'd found himself homeless. He had no income and he was just destitute and, and had nowhere to turn. So another gentleman by the name of Brad actually uh, was very savvy with crowdfunding. And he started the crowdfunding campaign on behalf of this chap. I actually managed to get in contact with, with the gentleman in question and said, look, pull down that, uh, that eBay sale, we'll take care of this. And at that point, my intention was to buy the medals from him and then return them to him and say, I own them, you're not to sell them, but here's some money to get you out of trouble and you owe us nothing. Anyway, overnight, this crowdfunding campaign raised almost $9,000. Uh, literally in 18 hours, it was about 8800 So it was an incredible response to this man's story. By the end of five days, it had raised $14,500. This gentleman really said he only needed 10000 So what he did was he donated, uh, split the remaining 4500 between Mates for Mates and Soldier On in Queensland, which was an incredibly generous thing to do for somebody who was in his position. The response, that's fantastic. The quick response of the public to donate that fast is a great reflection on the Australian values of mateship we like to go on about, and then his own humility and generosity to selflessly split the difference of what he didn't need. It's fantastic. Absolutely, it is incredible. And um, quite by coincidence, I've just left a meeting with that chap here in Townsville. And, um, you know, we are very, very close friends. And indeed, he does work with our organisation. And, and he's got a couple of people uh, in a property that he owns at the moment. 
um, who are transitioning from homelessness. And he's just an incredible inspiration. His his drive and his energy have been something that have kept me going, um, you know, despite the adversity that he faced. And, and look, what presented then was an opportunity to prevent, to intervene, to stop somebody from becoming that far destitute that they're living on the street. And thankfully, on that occasion, it was successful. So, as I was saying, Veterans Off the Streets Australia, VOTSA, um, was an idea conceptualised by Mick Spring. And we went forward um, with that to uh, uh, probably about two weeks and somebody got in contact with the page and said, look, there's a, a fellow living in Fremantle that's been on the street for about 22 months. And um, I, I served with him in the army and indeed in, uh, in Malaysia specifically. And he said, you know, is there anything you guys can do to help him? So that was where the concept of veteran assertive outreach was born. Um, we received that message at about 4.30 Perth time. And by 5.30, because uh, I actually live in Perth in Western Australia, by 5.30 that afternoon, I was down in Fremantle um, asking around in the homeless community networks if anybody knew of this chap, had any information about him or where I might possibly be able to locate him didn't manage to find him that evening, but um, I returned to Fremantle and to some of the uh, uh, organisations that provide morning services to the homeless in the area, and I was very fortunate just after 10 o'clock that morning to locate this chap and have a brief conversation with him. From there, it went, uh, I don't know if viral is the word, but from there, it, it certainly inspired us. Uh, to take some action and to do some more things in, in relation to helping people in off of the streets. And um, indeed, uh, we went on to form a, an official committee, an incorporated uh, entity called Veterans Off the Streets Australia, VOTSA. And um, yeah, it grew exponentially from there, Alex. And then you started your own charity, Veterans 360, springing off the back of VOTSA. In a sense, that would be fair to say. Um, there was some um, discussion in the committee about the uh, model that VOTSA would take, and it was initially discussed in the constitutional conversations that VOTSA would be a concierge or referral service, um, referring people that, that we locate, veterans and ex-service men and women that we locate into existing services, such as uh, the religious charities. Um, that exist out there and the other state-based homelessness services. Another aspect of it that uh, I guess presented a concern for me was that once those veterans were placed in those services, that VOTSA would discontinue any association with them. I personally felt that wasn't enough. I personally felt that when somebody trusts you enough to you know, walk with you and allow you to assist them out of this very personal destitution, that there is room for assisted case management and co-case management with other agencies because, you know, we are able to talk the talk and, and we are able to understand and empathise. And once that bond has been established, it's, you know, it can often be another letdown for the veteran to, uh, to be passed off. My other aspect of that was also that these mainstream charities weren't catching these veterans. A lot of veterans don't want to walk into one of these mainstream charities homelessness centres and ask for help because it's it's more or less an admission of how far they've fallen. And, you know, it's a very proud achievement becoming a member of the Australian Defence Force and, and marching out 
and and you know achieving your first rank and and having that pride and that fulfilment of being a part of the defense of this great nation to then years later after service with you know perhaps a lot of baggage that people might not consider to walk in and, and to have to tell your story to a receptionist at a desk an intake officer perhaps a social worker perhaps a psychologist perhaps all of those and tell that story multiple times can be a devastating devastating experience it was just something that i felt very strongly and very passionately about i i did argue my case with the, the committee it was uh, not supported by all it was supported by a number of people, but not by all, at which time I thought that it was best to step back. I'd already started designing the model of Veterans 360 Australia, and um, I thought it was best to step back so that that committee and that entity are able to continue with the good work they were doing and, you know, more or less to start again. And, and we deal with the really difficult cases, and that was the, the precipice of the model, to look at the people who are in those really difficult positions and and that are dealing with the deleterious behaviors such as drug and alcohol abuse significant mental health issues and uh, you know obviously ptsd that that uh, can create a, a massive amount of upheaval not only in the veterans lives but in their support networks their families and their peer groups so you really use those first two experiences in a townsville and Fremantle where you just naturally exerted some assertive outreach of your own to inspire your own model. Absolutely. And, and look, I, I did do some research. The um, Veterans 360 name does exist in the United States, in California. A, a very great man over there uh, by the name of Rick Collins is an ex-British Marine, ex-British serviceman. And um, I saw this name and I thought, wow, what an incredible concept. So I contacted him immediately. Um, and I asked him about what their organisation do, and their organisation concentrated on PTS, um, post-traumatic stress. You know, they have some great educational programs and re-employment and reintegration programs that are just phenomenal. So I spoke with him and I said, look, how would you feel if, uh, if we had a look at that brand and we altered it and changed it a little bit and concentrated in the field of uh, veteran homelessness here in Australia? Um, I think it took him about a half a heartbeat to say, yes, let's do it. I've, I've wanted to you know, to do more for veterans around the world. Um, and like with all charities, it's difficult to expand. So we, we signed an MOU and, and we went forward with, with that model, that assertive outreach model that was inspired by those initial cases with the intention of being able to locate, identify, intervene and assist with uh, ex-servicemen and veterans who have reached that point of destitution. So Jay, I want to go back a step. So you're in Queensland right now, but you're based in Perth. And I think this is a key part of your model that you are very hands-on in the way you assertively outreach. And I want to get to a couple of specific stories in a moment, but can you first sort of give me a brief overview of how your model generally works uh, on a case-by-case -case response basis? What makes you different from other organizations? Okay, I guess the easiest way to conceptualize this is high risk, high return, or high risk, high reward. Um, what we do that is different is if a family member or a, a member of somebody's peer group or indeed uh, the Department of Veterans Affairs or Veterans and Veterans Families Counselling Service contact us uh, and notify us of a veteran who is at risk, vulnerable or, or indeed uh, experiencing homelessness, um, we will respond to that anywhere in the country. And the way we respond to that is to get a location of that veteran. Often we, we do turn up at where we think they will be and we need to actually physically locate them. 
what we will do is we will go, we will be in situ with that veteran, we'll sit down with them. And, and look, we have a very important model. It's about introducing yourself and saying who you are, where we're from and what we do. And then about saying to somebody, you know, I can see that you're not in a great place. Would you like some help? And then listening to that answer. And if indeed the person says, yes, I would like some help, then it's about offering your hand and saying, can we help you? Would you like us to help you? And if they take your hand and, and they accept that offer, then we present options and choices to people. And, and once again, it's very specific to each individual person. We present options and choices to them. And, and based on our experience, which is now quite extensive, we're able to have those conversations very frankly, and we're able to put some things into motion very quickly. And over the, the last couple of years, we've developed a number of strategies that we have seen work very, very well and that have given people some fantastic outcomes. But again, it's very high risk. It can sometimes be quite dangerous. Um, we're going into places that um, a lot of people wouldn't tread. And, uh, you know, we find ourselves in situations, indeed, in January last year, unfortunately, I was assaulted uh, by a gentleman with a cricket bat. You know, so there are some risks. But again, the rewards are very high as well. When we see somebody who's been living in that situation, whether it's for a couple of weeks or whether it's for months or a couple of years, seeing that person stand up, take ownership of themselves and their responsibilities and their lives and and then start to make that transition in a wraparound service supported way. Um, you know, it's an incredibly powerfully, uh, you know, self-fulfilling uh, aspect for them. And it's something that we're incredibly proud of seeing people stand up and, and be able to walk away from that lifestyle and into something that's a bit more mainstream and, and a bit more normal. I can only imagine the powerful transformative aspect of your assistance, but that means then you're hands-on in this way, you're in Perth, you get a phone call, a referral about a veteran who's really in need, say, in Melbourne, you're jumping on a plane to fly over there to help. Generally within hours, yes. That must say quite a lot to your uh, donations that you need to pull in. Look, it's not a economically cheap solution at all. Ideally, and we hear this a lot from people, you know, can't you teach somebody, can't you train somebody, isn't there somebody else that can do this work? Yes, there are other people that can do the work. In fact, there are people that do this sort of work in the civilian community professionally, but they're employed by the mainstream charities. They've got 105,347 homeless Australians to work with in their demographic, and they need to be paid for their efforts. I was very fortunate in the beginning of, of having a, a reasonable uh, pool of cash that I was able to access through savings and, and indeed later on through selling some of my personal assets in order to uh, to maintain this work. You know, it's very difficult to say to people, look, it costs us between, say, $1,500 and $4,500 a week, depending on how many veterans we come into contact in an area to run these operations. But I guess I contrast that by saying, what's a life worth? There are certainly a number of veterans that I'm very honoured to have been involved with, and, and indeed our whole operations team uh, is very honoured to have been involved with, that say to us, without you, I, I would not be here. Um, without what you guys did and, and without your support and services and, and coming out to me on that day at that time, um, you know, I would not be here. 
So I guess we look at it from the perspective of what is a life worth. And if we took on board all of the money that's been donated to us and gifted to us over the last couple of years, you know, if if we can definitely say we saved one life, and, and I can say that with absolute conviction, then what is that life worth? And I think that it's, it's value for money at any level. I think, Jay, you have an amazing amount of compassion and drive and not to say other volunteers that approach you would not have that, but the self-resourcing and the sacrifice needed would be so high. So it is a difficult position for you to take someone else on and train them up to do the exact role you do. Would that be fair to say? It would be fair to say. And what's really interesting is um, the other members of our outreach team or our operations team, as we call them, my partner, Tessa, is a member of that team, as is uh, our Perth Metropolitan Coordinator, Chris, and all of us have experienced homelessness. We've interviewed uh, about 70 people around the nation and asked them uh, numerous questions and, and done some role playing scenarios with them. And, and we've really looked into that you know, compassion is a huge word. It's something that we need to see is there. And, and also having a look into their empathy and, and their understanding of situation. It's great to have somebody walk in and say, I'm really sorry to see these people in that situation. I want to do something to help. There are some people that you know, have that drive and willingness in the beginning. But when it comes down to doing 18-hour days, 16 and 18-hour days, nine, 10 days in a row, you know, that can be very, very taxing. And again, people need to earn money and they need to survive. So what we found is the people that have experienced homelessness, that have had that destitution placed upon them, and, you know, not all through drug addiction and, and uh, you know, mischievous behaviour such as mine. My partner had a house fire and she lost everything. She was in hospital in intensive care and, and she had nothing and didn't get a lot of support, didn't have a lot of people around her and you know, she was indeed taken back to the house and said, well, there's what you've got left and make the best of it. So there are lots of scenarios that can unfold in people's lives that give them this appreciation. I, I like to call it a calling. I, I like to think that when people see, hey, look, I can, I can understand that. I've been through something very similar. I would like to be involved in in working with an organisation that specialises in this area, you know, and it, it's an incredible drive and passion for those people. And again, it's something we find is successful because they're not looking for money and remuneration in a uh, fiscal sense. They're, they're looking to help people and to really get that message out there that you don't have to exist like this. I was chatting with you on Skype last week, Jay, to get some background information before today's interview. But we had to pause our conversation for you to take a phone call from Domino's. You put the delivery guy on speaker, and I'm really glad you did. Can you recap that moment last week for me, Jay? Certainly can. So we had a gentleman who had presented earlier that day through VVCS, the Veterans and Veterans Family Counselling Service. He had been living on the street. He'd had a couple of nights accommodation through the uh, uh, Street to Home service in New South Wales. And uh, indeed, that had expired. Uh, he'd been homeless over the course of about 12 months, and he'd had his 28 days of uh, government assistance available for emergency and crisis accommodation. So what we did was uh, validated his service with him, and then we put him into a hotel. 
indeed he, he had no food and his telephone unfortunately was not in a very good repair and he was unable to receive emails or text messages appropriately so we couldn't send him an e-voucher for food so what I did was organised him a Domino's for him to uh, uh, have delivered Unfortunately, the Domino's guy couldn't find the entrance to the facility that we were boarding him at. And, uh, yeah, we had to put him on speaker and then I had to get him to hold while I got the other guy on the phone and then talk them into each other so that they could both rendezvous when he could get fed. It was almost a bit situational comedy. You were managing this conference call between the veteran in need and uh, the Domino's guy and I'm eavesdropping via Skype. It was very bizarre but fantastic to listen in on. Well, look, I'm, I'm glad you got something from it. And, um, you know, in, indeed, probably about an hour after we completed that call, we had another referral for somebody in a similar situation, um, not too far away from that veteran. And, and we repeated that process again. Um, and indeed, twice with that guy, we had to talk dominoes in because they, they don't seem to have a good appreciation of the hotels in the area. But um, look, they're day-to-day things, Alex. They're things that are really quite I guess quite common for us, and although I, I accept that in your experience that was um, abstract, for us that's one of the easier moments of the day where we're, we're getting somebody some food, we're making sure that they're, even though it's pizza and it's not the greatest food, it does provide somebody who hasn't had anything um, solid to eat for a few days with an ability to eat slowly, um, there's carbs and, and some veggies involved, and um, you know, indeed a, a garlic bread and a a little bottle of fizzy drink can go a long way in making somebody feel sated. So directing Domino's is thankfully one of the lighter moments of your job. Can you tell me some of the harder days you have at work, Jay? Sure. Um, Look, I was sitting home one Friday night and uh, I was entertaining a couple of friends. Somebody alerted me to a post on Facebook that was quite concerning. Um, A returned serviceman from Afghanistan that was attached to a special forces unit Um, and indeed this this fellow was... uh, uh, blowing up in an IED explosion in a vehicle and a few weeks after that he uh, returned to duty and was uh, then involved in a vehicle rollover that essentially ended his career as a soldier. Um, he was out of his home state, indeed had been on a, uh, uh, a terribly harsh down path and had attempted suicide. So there was a lot of uh, Facebook chatter going on a lot of um, people trying to intervene and provide assistance and, and, and try to get to this fellow. I, uh, I saw this playing out on Facebook and very quickly plugged into our extremely efficient network and got some family contact details and eventually got his contact details and managed to speak with him. Unfortunately, he had uh, at that time been accosted by police and, and ended up being hit with a taser by police and and because of his brain injury, it created significant problems for him. What happened was it was agreed between myself and the family that we would dispatch to um, that state. And I'm being very cagey about where it was because I don't want to produce anything that could identify this fellow. But uh, we dispatched to that state at about midday the next day. And that was actually paid for by a, um, a member of the family of the Special Forces community. I went that morning and I, I picked up the donation and I had already booked a ticket and flew out to this state. We arrived there about 10 o'clock at night. At that point in time, I became aware that he had driven uh, into that state in his own vehicle and his desire was to leave immediately to return to his uh, home. 
So uh, there was some conversation had, he actually had uh, his ex-partner and an infant child with him. So we made some arrangements for them to be uh, billeted elsewhere and uh, we flew them home the next day. And I drove this veteran back to his home state. Now, indeed, we uh, we spent about 12 hours in the car driving. Over that period, I, I got to learn a lot about this this veteran and, and uh, a lot about his service and post-service life and the medical complications that he had experienced as a result of his two uh, very, very serious injuries. Indeed, he had to learn to walk and talk and, and look after himself again as a result of the traumatic brain injury he had experienced. When we were back at his uh, his home, uh, this, this gentleman uh, uses physical exercise, as do many veterans, to um, uh, you know keep their their psychological uh, health up and, and at it. And uh, he had requested to go to a gym, and I'd been awake for about 29 hours at this point, so I was more than ready to hit the rack, which I did at that point. Later, I was woken to a phone call that he wasn't very well, and uh, indeed he uh, needed some further assistance. I had understood he'd gone to the gym and he'd left there and he'd gone to um, see one of his friends uh, who notified us. During the uh, the drive, we had discussed some um, mental health admission to a hospital for him and uh, he'd agreed to that and indeed we were going to put that into play the next day. He returned to the property and uh, we were ready to accelerate the, the mental health admission. I'd, I'd made some inquiries with the hospital in question and uh, we'd found a way that we could get him admitted that day and, and he could be uh, then transferred to the mental health ward the following day. Uh, fortunately, as a result of the, this veteran's head injuries, he uh, suffers epilepsy and he had quite a significant set of seizures at that point in time. The first seizure was, was quite mild, although it was a grand mal seizure. The second one, unfortunately, went for 11 minutes and the veteran actually aspirated and stopped breathing. I had to clear his airway and indeed resuscitate him. I was on the phone with ambulance at the time and uh, I kept that resuscitation up for several minutes until Ambos arrived um, and were able to assist further. Um, he was at that point taken to hospital and he spent 12 days intubated in the intensive care unit and I sat with him for um, all of that time until a family member could come and um, take over that that watch and, and sitting with him so that at no time was he alone whilst he was in that uh, that situation. That's probably one of the more serious uh, interactions that I've had in this particular role and once again it's something that is very important when we are talking about how much is this worth, how much money do we put into this. Um, it's certainly something in from my position that I believe uh, is well worth the investment of the, the couple of thousand dollars that particular outreach mission cost. That veteran might otherwise, through no um, direct action of his own at that point in time, have aspirated and died on his own kitchen floor. And how much is a life worth? Uh, it's priceless. I want to look at how widespread this problem is. And before I get to numbers, this question might seem to have an obvious answer to the listener at first, but I think it's actually more complicated than people might assume. How does your charity define homelessness? We tend to rely on the uh, Australian Bureau of Statistics definition, and they have three models of homelessness. There is primary, secondary, and tertiary. The primary model of homelessness 
is what we refer to as people who are sleeping or living rough. So people that you might see in the street who I guess you could suggest are the stereotypical uh, homeless people. People that are living in shop fronts, warehouses. Uh, indeed, we found one veteran in Western Australia sleeping on a chet pallet out the back of a Kentucky fried fast food restaurant. So that's the primary model. Um, the secondary model would be uh, people who are couch surfing, staying perhaps with their parents, you know, 45 or 47 year old man staying with his parents. Um, they might be staying with friends. They might spend a couple of weeks in one location, a couple in another. So that's, that sort of encapsulates the, the secondary model. Sorry, jumping back to the primary model, um, we do find a lot of people living in their cars and that, that's been quite prevalent. And, you know, some people say, well, they're not homeless, they've got somewhere to sleep, but we don't call it carlessness and we don't call it houselessness. We call it homelessness for a reason because a home is much more than a roof and shelter from the elements. Yes, uh, four walls does not make a home. It just It's a great to have that for the night, but it doesn't mean you actually have somewhere that is yours. Absolutely. And somewhere you can socialise and somewhere that you can be comfortable. And, um, you know, and then we get into the tertiary model, which is people living in caravan parks, boarding houses, places that don't really have tenure, and it's not their home. They can't socialise there. They can't have friends over for a, a few drinks or a barbecue necessarily. And, you know, they, they potentially can't go from the bathroom to their bedroom wearing what they had on in the shower. So, you know, there are privacy issues. There are all sorts of things that, that contribute to that feeling of, you know, I'm there, I'm sheltered and I can eat, but I'm, I'm really, I'm not at home. I'm, I'm staying somewhere. And, and I use the word existence. I'm existing. Um, because certainly in my experience, when I left that hotel room that day and, and I stayed in boarding houses and I stayed in hotels and, you know, sometimes the cohort of people that frequent those places can be quite difficult to get along with. There's a lot of mental health issues in the homeless community. There can be a lot of drug and alcohol issues and temptations, especially for somebody in recovery. So, you know, there's a lot of complicating aspects. And indeed, one veteran from last week, um, who managed to find himself a, a boarding house accommodation, said that the room was just filthy and dirty. It was dusty. This this veteran has asthma now, and he found it quite difficult to breathe. And he was complaining about being woken up every 15 minutes from about 1 in the morning till 5 in the morning because the person who tenanted the room prior to him uh, was a drug dealer, and people hadn't realised he'd moved out. So there are lots and lots of complications in that tertiary model where people might think that somebody is safe in a boarding house or staying in a temporary accommodation. And there are lots of things that people aren't aware of that take place in those environments that really do contribute to the destabilisation of the person who is trying to move forward. And obviously some of the times you're jumping on a plane to help a veteran in need, they're obviously mostly in the primary model and have uh, severe challenges confronting them in the short term, but the second and tertiary models need dealing with as much as well, because that's not just survivability, it's their dignity, it's their life. It is, and, and the secondary and tertiary models are quite prevalent in us jumping on the plane as well, because we may have a, a parent or a partner or a sibling who has reached their ends of their means with the person. Family burnout is something that we see prevalent, prevalently, I'm sorry, in our uh, excursions around Australia, because 
we do see people that have tried. They say, you know, we've tried everything. We don't know what else to do. Come and get him out of here. And when somebody's being rejected that final time, even though the family love them and they want them to succeed and they want them to get better, they just don't have anything left in the tank. They don't have fuel there to continue with this fight. And, and it really is a fight when somebody's hanging on for dear life. And, you know, their depression, their anxiety their post-traumatic stress, their mental health deterioration in general can be something that just debilitates them entirely. Getting people to get up and get off the couch or even wake up and get out of bed is something that, you know, is just incredibly debilitating for the individual. And it's incredibly taxing for people around them. Some may say, oh, come on, just get up and get at it. And, and some may just not be able to see their loved one in that condition any longer. So with that criteria in mind, how severe is the homeless veterans problem in Australia, do you think? I've heard a mix of statistics and I wondered what kind of numbers that you thought we're talking about. Well, look, there are a mix of numbers out there. I would suggest the number of people in the first two categories would be in the vicinity of 500. I'd be comfortable with that number right around the country. 500 sleeping homeless per night. Yeah, so 500 sleeping in the first two categories of the primary and secondary, so the couch surfing and the, um, uh, you know, the sleeping in cars and sleeping on the street. I, I would be comfortable with that number. Now, it must be said, I don't have anything to back that up other than my experience, and it's all anecdotal. I would suggest that the number who would be living in boarding homes, housing, uh, you know, temporary accommodation, sorry, and uh, caravan parks, etc., could be anywhere from one to 2,000. Well, Jay, the problem is widespread and severe, especially based on that criteria. And any volunteers that do sign up with Veterans 360 Australia have to commit to a very full-on level of involvement, similar to that of your own. Besides volunteering, what are different ways people can help or get involved? Look, obviously, uh, this is a question that uh, a lot of people will probably turn the volume down now. It comes down to money, but that's not the only way. It's fantastic if people can fundraise, if people can find ideas and fresh ideas and just send them to us. Have you considered this as an idea? Have you considered that as an idea? Um, getting on our Facebook page and sharing our posts. One thing that I, I do see a lot of these days is people say we need to raise awareness. I disagree. I don't think we need to raise awareness of veteran homelessness. I don't think we need to raise awareness of veteran suicides. And I don't think we need to raise awareness of PTSD. I think the awareness is in the Australian community and it's very fluid and it's very well understood that people are aware of these conditions. I think we need to raise awareness of the organisations that are prepared to get in and do the work, you know, at no cost to the veteran and making the veteran and their family the centre point of their operations. So we could ask people to please share our posts on Facebook. We have a, a very dedicated band of just over four and a half thousand followers and, and at times we get a hundred thousand uh, people a week looking at our, our posts and our page. We do ask people to consider what they might be able to do locally. They might see somebody who is homeless and, and you know, veterans can recognise veterans very well. It's almost like a stamp. You know, it might be to approach them and say, have you heard of Veterans 360 and, and what they are able to do for you? Um, we have a 1800 number, which is a free call from any landline in Australia. And, uh, you know, promoting that and getting that out into the community, um, speaking with other organisations to let them know that we have this uh, service available and that there are people who can uh, come to the veteran and provide assistance and aid in situ uh, and once again, with, with their health and, and their good outcomes in mind. So 
although people may not be able to volunteer for specific reasons, just getting the awareness of our organisation and what we do and how we're able to help people can be, uh, you know, a really positive move for people. And, and they're helping very passively, but uh, again, it, it has a great reach. Well, Jay, these men and women don't just serve their country, but they sacrifice so much for it. And as you've said, with hundreds or possibly thousands of ADF veterans sleeping in homeless conditions of some kind per night, you're stepping up and making a difference. Alex, thank you. And uh, to the audience, thank you very much for listening. Our veterans fought for us, and now Veterans 360 Australia is fighting for them and saving lives. You can too. If you know someone in need, reach out directly to Veterans 360 Australia. If you don't know someone directly in need, you can still help by spreading the word on social media, by reaching out, or donating. Please do look them up online. What's your website, Jay? Uh, it's www.v360.org.au. And you have a Facebook page as well that you mentioned. We do, and that's all linked to our website, which is probably the best way to find it. But our Facebook page is V360 Australia Limited. Thanks for your time today, Jay. Thank you, Alex. Do check out Veterans 360 on Facebook. If you like this episode, you can check us out on Facebook too. We're on there and Instagram at Life on the Line Podcast and on Twitter at LOTL Pod. You can email us at podcast at lifeonthelinepodcast.com and don't forget to check out our website, www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. And if you know a veteran serviceman or servicewoman with a story to tell, please get in touch. We would love to have them on the podcast. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions, artwork by Big Cat Design, music by Dan Van Workhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget. <laughs>